Let my soul drink this morning. In Jesus' beautiful name, somebody say amen. Amen. Well, Boyce, uh, in his commentary on our text today, he reminded his readers of the Battle of Troy, particularly the Mycenaean king Agamemnon. Agamemnon was the brother of Menelaus, who was the king of Sparta. And you remember from Homer's Iliad, um, Menelaus was the husband of Helen. And you remember how the story goes. Helen was so beautiful. And uh, Troy sent uh, the son of the king, Paris, to Sparta to kind of try to make peace, you know, do a little political work there. But rather than making peace, Paris steals Helen and takes her back because he falls in love with her. And um, Menelaus recruits Agamemnon to go to Troy for the, you know, the battle. Do you remember they made that movie, Troy, with that actor who looks so much like me? I don't remember his name. Uh, oh, Brad Pitt. That was a Brad Pitt. Um, oh, you laughing too hard at that one. <laughs> oh, Lord. Um. Well, in that battle, Agamemnon is the field commander. They brought, um, Homer says, you know, when you're studying Greek history, you don't know what's myth and what's true. It just kind of all rolls together. But Homer said they brought a thousand ships and over a hundred thousand men um, to Troy. And Agamemnon was the field commander. Now, there are three main characters on the Greek side. Uh, one would be Achilles, who... Uh, history says Paris shot him in the heel, in the Achilles heel. And so Achilles died in that battle. Odysseus, he's the one in the story who has the idea of doing the Trojan horse thing, remember? Um, and Odysseus didn't make it home quickly. He kind of had a lot of trial and storms before he ever made it home from that journey. It was only Agamemnon who returned home quickly and in triumph. And so for 10 years, they siege Troy and Agamemnon uh, heads home in triumph and in victory. And um, after all the blood and the sweat and the trial, he gets to return home to his family. Problem is his wife's been having an affair um, for the time that he's been gone and the tradition kind of changes, but one version says that um, when he returns home, he's in the bathtub and his wife throws a net over him, like a fishing net, and stabs him to death. Um, and so after all of that, the blood and sweat, the king of, he's sometimes in Greek history called the king of kings because this is the Mycenaean period and he's the, the great king, the king of kings. After all this blood and sweat and victory and triumph, he makes it out of the war, returns home, great journey home to be murdered by his wife. Our text today from John 1, verse 9 to 13, it tells us that Jesus came to his own, but his own knew him not, did not receive him. Came to his own, that Greek phrase can be translated and sometimes is translated to say, he came to his own home. Some like it better the idea that he came to his own property. Meaning, Jesus came to the people who were his. And throughout the Old Testament, you kind of get this imagery. It's kind of a foreshadowing of the body of Christ being the bride of Christ. But you get this imagery of Israel being betrothed to Yahweh. And so Jesus returns to his own property, his own home. He comes to his own people. But rather than receive him... They, with their new lover, they've gone after other gods and in their darkness and hardness of heart, rather than receive their king, they violently murder him. Rather than receiving the one who promised Abraham children under the oak, 
the one who parted the sea to lead Israel from Egypt, the one who stood with Daniel's friends in the blazing fire. They violently murder him. He stood at the door and knocked, but was not received. That's the imagery there. Let's read verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Remember, two weeks ago now, Shadrach spoke for us last week on Psalm 51. It was beautiful. Thank you, Shadrach. But two weeks ago now, we... The line before, we talked about John the Baptist. Remember, John, the beloved writing, wanted us to know that John the Baptist was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So as we transition into the next line, we start with the true light, the light that was coming into the world. Again, John is distinguishing between John the Baptist's nature as a human prophet and Jesus' nature as divine, the true light. In John's gospel, he likes the word true. He likes that adjective. Um, And so he calls, in John's gospel, Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the true bread. He is the true light. The word true here, it it doesn't just mean the authentic light. It it does mean that. But it means um, the full light. It carries with it the connotation, you know, in court we say, we want you to tell the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. That concept lies in the word here. It's, it's not just that he's the, the authentic, the right light, but he's the full light. He's all of the light. None missing in him. He contains the entirety of light. He is the true light. That light gives light to everyone, John wrote, or every man. Now, you're left dangling, wondering, what does John mean by saying that the true light gives light to every man? Some run to the idea of general revelation here. Do you guys remember what general revelation is? We talked about it when we studied Romans chapter 1. It's the idea that humanity is created with certain abilities to discern good and evil, beauty and wonder, and in that capacity, humanity all witnesses the goodness of God through experiencing creation. Specific revelation, so there's two concepts. General revelation would be that every man or woman experiences the goodness of God as they witness a sunset. When you hold a newborn in your arms, you are keenly aware of the value and the gift of life. You know, as a grandparent, when you hold your first grandchild, you experience what is called general revelation. You experience God's goodness and gift. And what Paul taught in Romans 1 is that no one can deny God in the real center of who they are. They've been caught, declared to, through creation. 
specific revelation would be the moment when the Holy Spirit of God illuminates your heart and drives home the truth of the gospel to your conscience. So some say, maybe what John meant here by saying that the the true light, the full light shines on all men, maybe he's talking about general revelation. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that's what John's hinting at. It seems to me, and I'm following a scholar, D.A. Carson, I'm following him pretty carefully here. But it seems to me that when John says, Jesus is the light that shines on every man, John is driving home this point that Jesus is the standard of truth and holiness and purity. He's that standard on every man. John 3.19, look at this verse because this really highlights well what, what John's saying. Just a few chapters later. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So John is saying that the true light came into the world. And some loved that light, ran into the light, longed for the light. Others were evil in their hearts and loved their sin and their wickedness, so they rejected the light. When you choose to live a holy life, when you choose to be a person of conviction and standards, for instance, um, maybe you've decided that for you in your house, you're not going to watch television that dishonors God. And so if somebody on the show says GD or, or cuss word, you turn the thing off. Um, as you choose to live a holy life, you're sitting around a table with friends, maybe friends from church, and someone begins to gossip, and you speak up and you say, hey man, I don't, I'm, let's talk about something else. I just don't know that that's helpful to talk about that. People will either love you for that or they will hate you for that because you've become the conviction standard. Believers, sincere believers, when you say at a, a table full of gossip, when you say, look, let's talk about something else. I don't know that's God-honoring. Believers will love you for that. If your heart's pure, I will recognize in this moment that you're calling me to holiness. You're not condemning, but you're calling me up. And so sincere-hearted believers will say, yes, you're right. You're right. I got caught up for a moment. Let's talk about something else. But the world, or those who have not fully submitted to Christ, they'll say, oh, that person's haughty. Or they're religious. Or they're, uh, they're, they're hypocritical. They'll try to pick you apart. Now, if you take that principle and times it by one trillion, that's what Jesus was to the world. When Jesus stops and shows kindness to the poor, it challenges us. It challenges me. When Jesus says, you've heard that it's said not to commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed the act. What did he just do? He just challenged everyone listening. He called them to a higher standard of holiness. And those who are sincere and pure-hearted will say, yes, you're right, you're right. As I harbor lust in my heart, I am acting out adultery, you're right. I need to walk in a greater level of purity. Thank you, Jesus. But those who love their sin will say, who are you to say that to me? Who are you to call me to a higher standard? 
Jesus is the light that came into the world. And those who are sincere and will acknowledge that light and long for more of it. But most, scripturally speaking, most will hate it. They'll reject it. Now, I'd, I'd like to just dive into for another moment into the concept of the word cosmos, is which we translate as world. Um, so when he says the light shines on the cosmos, the world. Cosmos can have multiple connotations in Scripture. And so, for instance, when Jesus says at the end of John's Gospel, um, you are in the cosmos, but not of the cosmos. John's using the word world with a negative connotation. So by world, at the end of John's gospel, he means you are not of humanity's broken, fallen systems. You don't belong to the evil and the wickedness that plagues the earth. By world there, John has a negative connotation. When John says at the end of his gospel, he says this, the signs I've recorded for you, I've recorded so that by hearing them, you may believe. And then by believing, you'd have life. And he said, but if I tried to record all the signs that Jesus did, the entire cosmos couldn't contain all the books that would be written. There, John is using more of a neutral connotation. He means by using the word cosmos, vastness and greatness. It's neutral. It just means the universe couldn't contain all that Jesus did. Scholars tell us that the primarily, most of the time, when John uses the word world, cosmos, he means it with a negative connotation. John is more likely to use world with a negative connotation than he is to use it in a neutral connotation. Therefore, if you receive that idea and begin to read the scripture as if John is intending for a negative connotation, you might stumble into John 3.16. For God so loved the world... And you wouldn't read it as meaning, God so loved the vastness of the universe. He so loved the vastness of, of ethnicities and people and the stars and creation. He so loved the world that he gave his only son to have it. You would rather read it as, God so loved the fallen, broken, ugly cosmos. The darkness of humanity. He so loved us in our wickedness that he gave his only son for us. The connotation there would lead you to focus on the vastness of God's love to fallen sinful humanity rather than focusing on the vastness of creation. It changes the way that you interpret the line just a bit. And so if you carry that principle into our scripture today, when he says God so loved, or, or that, that into the world has come the true light and the true light has shone upon the world, when you carry the negative connotation, then I think you properly understand what's being said here. The true light has shone upon the wicked depravity of humanity. The true light, the selfless one, has shone upon our selfishness. The generous one has shone upon our own need to hoard. The healer has shone upon sickness. The forgiver has shone upon wickedness. It, it changes the way that you read this line. And, and I think this is the proper understanding of what's being said. Humanity is existing in darkness of sin from the fall of Adam. Plagues. Adultery. Rape. Molestation. Disease. Abandonment. 
bitterness, brokenness, governments betraying their own, the light of heaven, the king of heaven, the perfectly pure, full light, not just a piece of it, the fullness of the light, the true light has shone upon the darkness of the cosmos. If that's my wife, you now have permission to kick her, okay? I'm, 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 te- I'm teasing. Now that's what John's saying. The light shines on the brokenness of the world, shines on all of humanity, and some love it and others hide from it. All encounter the purity of who he is, the purity of that standard. And some recognize, I am sinful and I need the light of who you are in my chest. I need your purity and your goodness. I need your beauty within me. And they run and cling to him. Others love their sin, their sexual sin, their selfishness. And they say, how how dare you expose me? Now from there, we stumble into a really, really important conversation. And I'll just have it with you rather quickly. This truth that Christ is the pure light that shines on the brokenness and fallenness of humanity, it introduces a problem that we're experiencing very heavily in our culture today. If Christ can be represented in a more palatable way, In other words, if we can dim down the light of his holiness and represent him in a way that's more palatable and less offensive to the darkness, maybe the world will be more likely to receive him. And what we're doing, largely in our culture, is we're wrapping Christ in a veil because we're offended by the purity that he carries. And we're hoping that by by dimming down the standards, for instance, the standards of sexuality, Jesus taught really pure, really clearly that marriage is between, Matthew 18, between one man and one woman for life. Did Jesus teach about homosexuality? Yes, he taught that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. But if we can present Jesus in such a way that he doesn't really have anything to say about sexuality, so you just live however you want to live, fulfill all of your sexual desires, you have whatever you want to have. Jesus doesn't care about that then we can dim down the light and make him less offensive to the darkness. And what a shame it is to try to make the light less offensive to those who are living in evil. To manipulate and twist and pervert the scriptures of the holy God of the universe in hopes of not offending the darkness. We don't want to offend our culture. Jesus, this is exactly what Jesus meant when he said, I do not come to bring peace, but a sword, but division. He didn't mean I come to bring violent violence. He didn't mean I come to bring some kind of violent rebellion. He meant that the world will hate me. And it's not my goal just to make peace with the darkness. It's my goal to drive it out. And church if you participate in the dimming down of the truth of who Jesus is in hopes of not offending the darkness around you, you are betraying the gospel.
Many would say in our culture today, Jesus is my Savior and Jesus is my friend. But the true church of Christ will say, Jesus is my Savior. He is my friend. He is my Lord. He is my light. I don't get to call the shots around what is morally appropriate and what's not morally appropriate. He is the standard. He has laid out the standard for me plainly through the written word of God. And any who attempt to understand the word with an honesty in their heart will come away with light. But if you come to the word with a manipulative nature and you begin to twist and do gymnastics with the text, you can bend and reshape and recast it's evil. It's evil. And we, we must, we must be on guard against that kind of twisting. So John says he comes to the cosmos, to broken humanity. He comes to the creation that he created. And then he says, and even furthermore, he comes to David's children to the offspring of Abraham that he promised and then he calls to be born. And then he, then he comes to the Israel that he led through the Red Sea. He comes to the Israel whom he has been her healer and her lover. He comes to his own people and they hate him, despise him because he exposes their spiritual hypocrisy. They stuff their fingers in their ears and close their eyes. Hang him on a tree as a cursed man. The implication that John is trying to communicate, he's saying, why did they murder Christ? Because he exposed their own wickedness. John is saying here, it's not just that they missed him, they murdered him because they could not stand the light that he brought. John is saying, we refuse him because we enjoy our own pursuit of sexuality. We, desor- we, we enjoy our own egos. We, we like our ego. We don't want anyone to tell us that we should ever repent or apologize or turn. Who's, who are you to tell me how to live? We love our ego, and so we reject him. We're broken and fallen in the core of who we are. Now, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army and a hot preacher, once said this, The chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. When we try to dim down the light of who Jesus is, we are embracing a Christianity with no Christ, a forgiveness with no repentance. I'm asking you to allow the light of God to purge you of all of your evil desires, your dark desires. I'm asking you to love him. Love him sweeter, love him better, love him with a hotter love, devoted love. Now verse 12, before we close, it's hot. And so if you guys could quit breathing for the next 20 minutes, I'm sure it will cool off a little bit. (laughs) John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, 
So the world rejects him because he shines on their evil, their wickedness. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but are born of God. And here we see John the Evangelist. John is now at the introduction of his, of his gospel, releasing an invitation to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. We need to make sure, church, that we are being precise with biblical language. Because when we say things like, God, all of humanity are God's children. We're all God's children. We're all brothers and sisters. There's a sense in which that's true. And in the sense that we are all created in the image of God. We are all God's craftsmanship. But God has a particular people. God has children that belong to him. God has a family. And we don't want to say, all belong to God, as if all have been born again of the Spirit into his family. We need to be sure that we are precise in our language. Remember Jesus saying to the Pharisees in John 8, 39-45, They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. So the Jews say to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, if Abraham was your father, you would be doing what Abraham did. But rather, because you cannot stand my word. Can you, can you feel the theme that's running through John's gospel here? Because you can't bear the word that I bring. You attempt to murder me after your father, the devil. And so we need to recognize that there is that scriptural delineation between those who belong to the world, the cosmos, the broken systems of humanity, and those who are uniquely God's children. God has a particular family who belong to him. And our invitation to the world is come out of darkness and come into light. You can become a child of God if you repent, turn, and believe in Jesus. But if you continue to live in your rebellion, your father is the devil is essentially Jesus' implication. You belong to the world. Sometimes the word for right here, when, when John says, to all who did believe, he gave the right to become children of God. Sometimes that word's translated as power. He gave the power to become children of God. The word power is not the right translation here. It does mean power, but with it comes the concept of not just he gave you the ability, but he gave you the, the legal, if you will, on the 4th of July, he gave you the constitutional right to be children of God. There has been a legal transaction in the heavens. You have the deed. Adoption is firm in the courts of heaven. You have the right, the legal right that you can hold. 
When Hebrews says, come boldly before the throne of grace, it's, it is saying that we step with, with confidence into the throne room of God because we have the authority, the right, because he has called us sons and daughters because of Jesus. I was laying in bed recently. You guys know I, I really struggle to make my brain stop spinning. I'm laying in bed and my brain's spinning and I'm having a bit of anxiety. And um, I, felt, I felt the Spirit, you know, you kind of commune with the Spirit. I felt like the Spirit whispered to me, um, what are you so afraid of? You know, when God asks you a question and you just listen, you just, huh. And I was laying there, what am I so afraid of? And I said, I don't know, God. I, you could strip me of my finances and my home and everything could fall to pieces. That really wouldn't break me. The only thing that would break me, I guess, is if you removed your hand from my life. I was saying to the Holy Spirit, you know, your, your presence in my life is really all that matters. Your, your, your goodness over me settles my heart every time. It's all I need. I guess the only thing that I'm really afraid of is losing that. And I felt the Holy Spirit whisper this verse back to me. To all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And I felt the Holy Spirit saying to my anxious heart, my presence in your life is your right. My goodness and favor on your life, that's a right. My hand over your life, it's a right. You have the right as a child of God. And when God speaks, he doesn't change his mind. And when God gives good gifts, he doesn't revoke them. There is nothing. This is what Paul means in Romans 8 when he says there's no height or depth or width, breadth. Nothing can separate me from the love of God because in the courtroom of heaven, a transaction has taken place. The deed has been signed away. Adoption is final. I belong to him legally, officially, permanently. Permanently, I belong to him. But to all who did believe, he didn't just give the power to become children of God, but the right to become children of God. Not born of the, of the flesh, not born of human procreation, not born of the will of man, but born of the will of God, God's spirit. I am his choosing and his spirit birthed me. And that should make your heart thankful and your heart rest. And this is where we find Jesus saying, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Hebrews 4 Enter into my rest. For all those who believe, he's given you the right, the authority to be his children. We'll stop there for today. In conclusion, worship team come. He is the light of the world. He shines in, on the brokenness and the fallenness and the wickedness of humanity with perfect, pure light, perfect holiness. He exposes to creation her brokenness. And in the exposing, he offers to us the opportunity to step into light. Learn to love that about him. Learn to love that about him. When you do start to gossip, 
you know, you're sitting at the table and you know something and you just, you got that itching to share and you feel the light of God prick you. The Holy Spirit shine upon your wickedness. Learn to love that about him and say, I like to say in my heart, yes, sir. (laughs) Yes, sir. I hear you. Yes, sir. Learn to love repentance and mercy because every time he convicts you, he's drawing you deeper into the light, deeper into joy and peace and life. Two, we need to be sure that we don't participate in the dumbing down of the light. And if the church is not um, actively pursuing holiness and preaching the word of God and all of its standard, proclaiming the law of God, if we're not actively declaring truth to sin, we are participating in the reshaping of Christ and dumbing down the light in hopes that we don't offend the darkness. When Christ was very, very clear that he came to wage war with darkness. His intent was not that we dumb down the light and kind of compromise with the darkness. He said, proclaim the truth with boldness. The apostles did not pray in Acts chapter 4, oh Lord, teach us to be better diplomats with the darkness. (laughs) They prayed, God, give us boldness. Give us boldness. You are called to be a people of boldness in this hour who speak the truth of the king under his authority and his anointing. You better say what he said. It's actually what it means. The word apostle means, um, gospel means, it, it means, uh, it carries with it the idea of a, um, oh yeah, of a diplomat that you are sent to another region with a message from the king. You better say what he said. Let's make sure we don't participate in the dumbing down of who Jesus is. Third, if you'd stand to your feet, An altar ministry, if you get in place. What the Bible teaches is that every one of us in this room deserves punishment, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not a person in this room who will stand before God on the last day and say, look, I lived perfectly pure. You owe me heaven. But every person for all of humanity will stand before God and will either hear judgment, punishment, become children of God who are welcomed to the the throne room of heaven, who have the right to access God's presence only because we believed and received him. So this morning, if you've never called yourself a Christian, you've never received Christ, you've never prayed a prayer asking the Lord to be the Lord of your life, we want to invite you to become a child of God today. You can leave here with the right to heaven, the right to to be a child of God, not because of what you've done, only because of what Jesus has done for you. We don't care what you did last week. We don't care what you did last night. You could say, oh, I committed some great act of immorality last night. God, God could never receive me. And we say, no, it's not about what you've done. It's about what he's done. Bow your knee to him today. Call him Lord today. Believe on him for salvation today. Turn today and you will be a child of God, born not of the will of man, born not of the flesh, but born of God. Today you can have everlasting, eternal life, but you must bow your knee to the light. And so, hallelujah. And so this morning, if that's you, the altar is going to be open for you to come and we'll pray with you and you can leave here sure that God 
has called you his son or his daughter. The second thing, one of the members of our prayer team, our intercessors, had a dream this week and others had words that aligned with this idea that God is calling us to a deeper rootedness. He is calling us to a new level of fruitfulness, but with that, we need to let our roots drive deeper into who God is. And so he may want to purge us of some sinful desires. Maybe you're living in bitterness today. God wants to purge you of that bitterness. God wants to purge you of selfishness, of of false hopes and dreams, because he wants your roots to be planted deep in the river of God. He is calling us in this hour to be a mature people. I said to a friend last night, we were at a barbecue, and I said that I look at the world and I say, man, it really feels like the enemy is preparing for something. It looks like the world is growing in darkness. But then I look at our church and I see that God is driving us deeper in his presence. I see that God is drawing folks to the gospel, that God is making us fruitful. So this morning, if that's you, if you would say, man, I just, I just agree with that word. I need God to drive my roots deeper into his presence. I need to make sure that my foundation is based only on the gospel of Christ. I want to ask you to come to the altar this morning and let us pray for you. We're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would just touch you afresh. So the altars are officially open. Go ahead and come. Don't hesitate. If you need to give your life to Jesus this morning, or you just want to say, God, touch me again. Let my roots go deep. I want you to come now. Don't be bashful. Don't hesitate. Come. Come on, he's here this morning. Come on, he's here this morning. We need your presence. We love your light. worship. One more minute. surrender our hearts to you. We ask that the holy light of God would pierce the darkness in our hearts, pierce the darkness in our homes, and pierce the darkness in this community. We love you. We love you for all that you are. We love you for all that you are. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. There's no one like you in all the heavens or all the earth. 
Let every knee bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And all the church says amen. Amen. All right, our altars are going to stay open. You guys know how we do. If you need ministry, the worship team will hang out. You feel free just to press into the Lord. If not, you are officially dismissed. And y'all come back for, for lunch today as we celebrate the goodness of God in our nation. We love you. Lord is in this place.